Today we are wrapping up our Yes and Amen series, and uh, I wanted to say thank you to Josh and Jillian's not here for their contributions, and also just for the conversations that we've been having around the whole idea of God's promises, His faithfulness. And um, I wanted to just let you guys know that we're going to be heading into a series this summer on the Psalms called Praying Through. And we're going to be thinking about like, you know, sometimes I don't know if you've ever had this time where you don't even know what to pray. And it's like, I just need words to pray. And so there's this whole book in the Bible called Psalms. That's all prayers we can pray. And so we're going to be thinking about that, especially for those of us who are thinking about building a rule of life after emotionally healthy spirituality. How do we integrate this into our normal life as just praying a psalm a day or something like that. So we've got a few different topics, a few different people are going to be teaching. And so that's what we're going to be doing this summer. Sound good? Even if it's not, doesn't sound good, we're going to do it. Um, And one more thing. It was great to be together last week at the Paris Street Building, you know, and I'm looking forward with great hope with with what God wants to do in the coming years. I have so many things going on here. Um, But... I want to ask you to keep praying with us as we're, as we're really seeking God for what he wants to do in that space. We don't want to just, you know, come with our own ideas and our own agendas. We want to trust God and believe he, he wants to speak something specific for us that we can continue this mission of in Allison as it is in heaven. Okay, so pray with us. In two weeks, we're going to be starting this, the series on Psalms. But today, let's dive in to our last promise of God. So I want to tell you guys a story. Uh, in the early 2000s, there was an open mic night each week at the Groundswell Cafe in Alliston. Many of us here in this room would have attended and maybe would have had a coffee brewed by my wife Jess or an appetizer prepared by Chef Heather. Anyone, anyone actually go to that open mic night? A few of us, yeah? You were a child? <laughs> you, if, if you were there, one thing I know for certain is that you would have heard at least one Neil Young cover song. Uh, one fateful open mic, open mic night in 2007 sticks out in my memory, though. It was the coming together of two clans, two very different and unique clans from different lands, from distant lands, with different traditions, different cuisines, different customs, different accents, even though they spoke the same language. I'm talking about the Wolves and the Deckers. Uh, before my family came up to meet my soon-to-be wife's family, I had a very direct conversation with my dad. It went something like this. Hey, Dad, I I know you love the Left Behind book series. Yeah, it's the best. Okay, Dad, I'm glad that you think it's the best, but the truth is a lot of people would disagree with you. And and high on that list is actually my soon-to-be father-in-law, Klaus. Is it Klaus or Klaus? Dad, Dad, stay focused. Would you please do me a favor and not bring up Left Behind when you're there? Actually, please steer clear from any conversations about the rapture, the antichrist, the end of the world, things of that nature. Please no eschatology with Jess's dad. Buddy, I can make no guarantees, but I will try not to. Okay, thanks, dad. And it's class, like first class. Okay, got it. Klaus. Fast forward to open mic night at Groundswell on May 10th, 2007. The two clans are listening to, I believe keep on rocking in the free world at this point. And I noticed that my dad and Klaus were talking, and so I very hesitantly walked over to see how things were going. And as I got closer to the two patriarchs, I noticed the familiar look of intensity my dad got when he talked about, you guessed it, left behind. Which also explained the glazed over eyes that my father-in-law was displaying. 
You see, my dad was one of many of the people who were enamored with the Left Behind book series that came out in the late 90s and early 2000s. It focuses on a seven-year conflict between the Tribulation Force and underground network of converts in the New World Order-esque global community and its leader, Nikolai Carpathia, who is the Antichrist in this story. The primary element is a Christian dispensationalist view of the end times, the pre-tribulation, pre-millennial, Christian eschatological interpretation of the biblical apocalypse, right? You guys know. Okay. That's, that's irrelevant. But here, the book series is based in a particular interpretation of the last book of the Bible, Revelation, which is one of the more confusing books to wrap our minds around. It is often turned into a predictor of the next horrible thing that will happen in the world type of book. And in this line of thinking, there are so many wild ideas and what the, of what the future will hold and what it will take to get us there. YouTube, anyone? The British journalist G.K. Chesterton, Chesterton once quipped that, Though St. John the Evangelist saw many strange monsters in his vision, he saw no creature so wild as, as one of his own commentators. That took a while. I would hold the conviction, I would personally hold the conviction that this book is instead a discipleship manual, a book that is incredibly hope-giving, and it gives us a glimpse of where all of creation is heading, and in that is a revelation of Jesus. So I told you this story not just to poke fun at my dad, but because it gives us a glimpse of someone who is trying to understand something. You see, again, we as humans are trying to make meaning of this life unfolding around us. And although he and I may disagree about what things will look like, I would agree that the question is still most definitely worth asking. What is going to happen in the future? And what does the end of all things look like? Here's a key point. The quality of the present is shaped by our experience of the past and by our understanding of the future which says to me, I, I want to get the future straight in my mind. That's why for a lot of us over the last few years, it's been incredibly difficult, particularly difficult maybe. And you may be there today. You know, I don't know if you guys feel like this, but it's always a battle to be present. And this could be partially because we're unsure of what the future may look like. We're looking back in the past and we're just maybe anxious about the future. To be fair, so many unpredictable things have been thrown our way and different questions we're facing now that we never imagined we'd have to face. But the good news this morning is that we can look to Jesus to teach us how to think properly about the future. He wants to teach us how to be present to God and to others no matter what the circumstances may be. Which brings us to this question that we're going to be talking about today. What is your picture of the future today? This question has huge implications for our everyday lives, the way that we interact with others, with creation, with God, with questions, with world events, with our enemies. Again, the quality of the present is shaped by our experience of the past and by our understanding of the future, which says to us here this morning that we will want to get the future as straight as we can. And this is why we're going to, to close our series this morning with a reminder of the promise that Jesus the King will return. This is where all of creation is heading, a reunited heaven and earth, a new city, Jesus on his throne. What we're going to do, guys, to start those, we're going to watch a Bible project video, because they're going to be able to condense what would take me a long time to say in like six minutes. I'm going to go cut the lights.
Earth are ways of talking about God, space, and our space. So I understand our space really well through here, there's trees, rivers, mountains. But my understanding of God's space gets a little fuzzy. And what we do get in the Bible are images trying to help us grasp God's space, which is basically inconceivable to us. So these are two very different types of space. Yes, they're, they're different in their nature, but here's what's really interesting. is that In the Bible, these are not always separate spaces. So think of heaven and earth as like different dimensions that can overlap in the same exact space. So we talk a lot about going to heaven after we die, but... This idea of heaven and earth overlaps. Which is kind of crazy because the union of heaven and earth is what the story of the Bible is all about. How they were once fully united and then driven apart. And about how God is bringing them back together once again. So let's go back to the beginning. Where heaven and earth are completely overlapping. Yeah, this is what uh, the Bible's description of the Garden of Eden is all about. It's a place where God and humanity well together perfectly no separation and, and humans then partner with god in building a flourishing beautiful world and so on. but as humans we wanted to do things a different way we wanted god out and we wanted to create a world perfect yes we have these two spaces now and the bible actually uses lots of different kinds of words and phrases to refer to these two spaces to make a clear distinction so you said that these spaces can overlap so Explain about Yeah, this is where we have to start talking about temples. Because in the biblical world, you experience God's presence by going to a temple. That's where heaven and earth overlap. Now, there are two types of temples described in the Bible. One is a tabernacle, basically a tent that was built by Moses. And the other was this massive building made by Solomon. And these temples were decorated with fruit trees and flowers and images of angels and all kinds of gold and jewels and so on. And these are designed to make you feel like you're going back to the garden. And at the center of the temple was a place called the Holy of Holies, which was like the hot spot of God's presence. Now we can go and be with God again. But not so fast, because the temple also creates a problem. So God's space is full of his presence and goodness and justice beauty but human space is full of sin and injustice and the ugliness that results so how do these spaces overlap if they're so different and they're complementary this was resolved through yeah yeah that's kind of yeah the, the idea is this animal sacrifices somehow they absorb the sin when the animal dies in your place and so it creates a clean space, so to speak, where you are now free to enter into the temple and be in God's presence. Okay, so if I'm an Israelite and I live in Jerusalem, I might be able to be in God's presence. I mean, you said the story of the Bible is all of heaven and earth. Right, so we have to keep going in the story where we come to Jesus in the New Testament. And in the Gospel of John, we hear this claim that God became human in Jesus and made his dwelling among us. Now this word dwelling is really curious. Literally it means he set up a tabernacle among us. And so what John is claiming right here is that Jesus is a temple. He is now the place where heaven and earth What's interesting about Jesus is that he isn't staying in this safe space. He's running around hanging out with sinners. He's healing people of their sicknesses, forgiving people of their sins. He's basically creating little pockets of heaven. 
where people can be in God's presence, but he's doing it out there in the middle of the world of sin and death. And he keeps telling everyone, the kingdom of heaven is at hand. And he even told his followers to pray regularly that God's kingdom come and that his will be done here on earth, just as it is in heaven. But a lot of people are threatened by Jesus and they kill him, which seems to spoil this whole plan to reunite. But we, we have to go back to a scene earlier on in Jesus' story where John the Baptist saw Jesus and said, Behold, this is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. So Jesus isn't just talked about at the temple, he's also talked about at the beginning of the sacrifice. Yeah, so, so the cross is now the place where Jesus absorbs sin to create a clean space that is not limited by animal sacrifice. Jesus' sacrifice has the power to keep spreading and spreading and reuniting more and more heaven and earth. And this is all really great, but it leaves one big question in my mind, which is, what happens when I die? Don't I just fly over to God's face to be with Jesus? Yeah, so a few times in the New Testament, we learn Christians will be with Jesus in heaven after they die, but that is not the focus of the Bible story. The focus is on how heaven and earth are being reunited through Jesus and will be completely brought together one day when he returns. So in the book of Revelation, we get this beautiful image of the Garden of Eden, now in the form of city, coming to end the age of sin and death by redeeming all of human history in a renewed creation. And God's face and human space You can turn it off now. Thank God for the Bible project. <clears throat> All right, if you guys have your Bible, we're going to read a, a chunk of the Bible um, from Revelation 21 to 22. And I didn't put it on the screen on purpose because I want you guys to, if you have your Bible, pull the dang thing out um, and open it up. And otherwise, let's just use our imaginations as I read from God's Word, okay? So, Revelation 21. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth, for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away, and the sea was no more. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne, Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more, because the previous things have passed away. Then the one seated on the throne said, Look, I am making everything new. He also said, Write, because these words are faithful and true. Then he said to me, It is done. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. I will freely give to the thirsty from the spring of the water of life. The one who conquers will inherit these things, and I will be his God, and he will be my son. But the cowards, faithless, detestable, murderers, sexually immoral, sorcerers, idolaters, and all liars, their share will be in the lake that burns with fire and sulfur, which is the second death. Then one of the seven angels who had held the seven bowls filled with the last seven plagues came and spoke with me. Come, I will show you the bride, the wife of the Lamb. 
He then carried me away in the spirit to a great high mountain and showed me the holy city, Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, arrayed with God's glory. Her radiance was like a precious jewel, like a jasper, jasper stone, clear as crystal. The city had a massive high wall with twelve gates. Twelve angels were at the gates. The names of the twelve tribes of Israel's sons were inscribed on the gates. There were three gates on the east, three gates on the north, three gates on the south, and three gates on the west. The city wall had twelve foundations, and the twelve names of the twelve apostles of the Lamb were on the foundations. The one who spoke with me had a golden measuring rod to measure the city, its gates, and its wall. The city is laid out in a square. Its length and width are the same. He measured the city with a rod at 12,000 stadia. Its length, width, and height are equal. He, then he measured its wall, 144 cubits according to human measurement, which the angel used. The building material of its wall was jasper, and the city was pure, was pure gold, clear as glass. The foundations of the city wall were adorned with every kind of jewel. The first foundation is jasper, the second sapphire, the third chalcedony, the fourth emerald, the fifth sardonyx, the sixth carnelian, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth chrysoprase, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates are twelve pearls. Each an individual gate was made of a single pearl. The main street of the city was pure gold, transparent as glass. I did not see a temple in it, because the Lord God, the Almighty, and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need the sun or the moon to shine on it, because the glory of God illuminates it, and the lamp is the Lamb. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their glory into it. Its gates will never close by day, because it will never be night there. They will bring the glory and honor of the nations into it. Nothing unclean will ever enter it, nor anyone who does what is detestable or false, but only those whose only those written in the Lamb's book of life. You guys okay? I got one more chapter. Then he showed me the river of, wa of the water of life, clear as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the city's main street. The tree of life was on each side of the river, bearing twelve kinds of fruit, producing its fruit every month. The leaves of the tree are for the healing of the nations, and there will no longer be any curse. The throne of God and the Lamb will be in the city, and his servants will worship him. They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. People will not need the light or a lamp or the, or the light of the sun because the Lord God will give them light and they will reign forever and ever. Then he said to me, these words are faithful and true. The Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. Look, I am coming soon. Blessed is the one who keeps the words of this prophecy of this book. I, John, I'm the one who heard and saw these things. And when I heard and saw them, I fell down to worship at the feet of the angel who had shown them to me. But he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you. Your brothers, the prophets, and those who keep the words of this book. Worship God. Then he said to me, don't seal up the words of the prophecy of this book, because the time is near. Let the unrighteous go on in unrighteousness. Let the filthy still be filthy. Let the righteous go on in righteousness. Let the holy still be holy. Look, I am coming soon. And my reward is with me to repay each person according to his work. I am the Alpha and the Omega, the first and the last, the beginning and the end. Blessed are those who wash their robes so that they may have the right to the tree of life and may enter the city gates. Outside are the dogs, the sorcerers, the sexually immoral, the murderers, the idolaters, and everyone who loves and practices falsehood. 
I, Jesus, have sent my angel to attest these things to you for the churches. I am the root and descendant of David, the bright morning star. Both the Spirit and the bride say, Come. Let anyone who hears say, Come. Let the one who is thirsty come. Let the one who desires take the water of life freely. I testify to everyone who hears the words of this prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God will add to him the plagues that are written in this book. And if anyone takes away from the words of this book, of, his, of this prophecy, God will take away his share of the tree of life and of the holy city, which are written about in this book. He who testifies about these things says, Yes, I am coming soon. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. The grace of the Lord Jesus be with everyone. Amen. Let's pray. Yeah, Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you that this is the end of the story. This is where we're all headed. This is the end of um, the, the, this age. And so we pray, Lord, that our hearts and minds would have uh, a clearer picture of the future formed as we listen this morning to your word, as we sit under the authority of the word of God, and that we would be transformed, God, that we would be a people who is able to be more present than we were yesterday because we're more sure about the future. We're more sure that you're actually going to come back, God, that you are not aloof, that you are paying attention and you have a plan and a purpose, and that you're bringing all of history to its completion and to its fulfillment in Jesus. And so we, we yield our hearts to you this morning. We ask you to take the words I've, I've got written down here and use them to bless this, this beautiful bunch of people. And uh, may we be more like Jesus than we walked in the room. Holy Spirit, come, help us, lead us, and guide us. And uh, we're just so grateful for your presence here with us, God. Pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So I want to just spend our time, guys, talking about six things that are just thinking about the new city the new Jerusalem and where we're having, heading, where, what, what Jesus is going to usher in as he returns, where are we going to be with him forever. And so I want to talk about six, that, uh, based on what we just read, six things that are not in the new city and, and seven things that are there. And then I want to just end with a little challenge for us as, as we think about the future. Okay? Okay. The first thing that we see that is not there is the sea. Sad. I saw a new heaven and a new earth. There was no longer any sea. And so rest assured, beach bums, this does not mean what you think it means. Talking to my wife over there. No, in the Bible, the sea represents the forces of chaos, which seek to bring the world back to a state of chaos and nothingness, right? That's where it started. The Holy Spirit hovered over it and created this beautiful thing that we live and inhabit now. But for the first audiences hearing and reading this, the forces of chaos were located in or at least associated with the winds and waves of lakes and oceans. So the sea represents to them the powers at work in the universe that threaten to undo us. In the new city, the forces of chaos are gone. So we have our own forces of chaos in our own lives here now, right? It could be, there's a whole bunch of things that we could slot in there. But in the new city, there is no force of chaos that can undo you. The second thing that is not there, there's no tears, there's no death, there's no mourning, there's no crying, and there's no pain. Amen. It sounds almost too good to be true. Can it really be true? Those of us who struggle with chronic migraines and have them every week or every month, they're gone. Um, I walked into the tongue of our trailer yesterday full force. I won't have any pain when I do that in the new heavens. No tears, no death, no mourning, no crying, and no pain. The third thing, this is pretty strongly implicated here, is, is there's no temple. 
Uh, John says, and I saw no temple. This is unheard of for a lifelong Jew like John. This is not, this is not how to speak or think. For to speak of God and to think of God is to speak of the temple. So this is where God chose to dwell. This is where the people encountered God, like we just um, saw in this video. John is looking for the temple in this new city, but he doesn't see one because the city is the temple. The whole city is the temple of God. And I don't know if you guys noticed as I was reading all those measurements and talking about different uh, jewels and such, that the dimensions are actually that of a cube, which is a callback to the Holy of Holies in the temple. This means that the new city is the Holy of Holies. The entire thing is the Holy of Holies, the, the locus point of the presence of God. So the whole city is a sacred space. So there's no temple. There's no tears, death, mourning, crying, or pain. There's no chaos that can undo us. The, the fourth thing is there's no need of a sun or of the moon to shine upon it. And the key there is that there's no need. The whole place is filled with light. The city is the temple and God dwells everywhere in the city. There is no need for the light of the sun or the moon. Talk about shine, Jesus shine. And then number five, there are no closed gates. It says really cleanly or clearly, its gates shall never be closed. And this implies the city is not a jail. We're not trapped there. Like, ah, I don't want to be here. The city has no gates, no closed gates, and the city has nothing to be afraid of. And the sixth thing that is not there is there should no longer be any curse. The final reversal of the curse of sin, the ground, the relationships they're in, the suffering through childbirth, all of those things are removed in and through Jesus' rule and reign being fully established. The blessings have so overrun reality that there is no trace of the curse anymore. So creation has finally been set free and liberated from slavery and futility and to the frustration that is attached to that. Okay, so six things that are not there. The C, was that up the whole time? Sweet. Yeah. So you guys already know. I don't need to just keep repeating myself. <laughs> six things that are not there. Okay, seven. So if those things aren't there, then what is there? The first and most important thing is God is there. So I'm going to, I'm going to read again from Revelation 21, verses 2 and 3. I also saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven from God, prepared like a bride adorned for her husband. Then I heard a loud voice from the throne. Look, God's dwelling is with humanity, and he will live with them. They will be his peoples, and God himself will be with them and will be their God. So seven things that are there. Number one, God. God will dwell among us. This is the fulfillment of God's promise that he has reiterated for centuries. I will make my home among you. So in the new city, nothing exists outside of God. And we will live there. We will, sorry, we will finally live consciously so within the circle of the inner Trinitarian relations of God in the very center of who God is and what he's like. God is there everywhere in all God's splendor and majesty and power and holiness and healing and love. We live and move and have our being in God to the fullest measure. This is what we're looking forward to, guys. Number two, what is there? There is glory. Glory is, uh, the Greek word for glory is doxa, which means the heaviness of God's self-manifestation. So the whole city glows with the glory or the doxa of God, reflecting the divine nature in every part. Theologians use a word for this phenomenon called effusion. It means unrestrained expression, free flow. All that makes God be God freely flows in every part of the city. That's going to be amazing. Uh, number three, there's stuff there, like tangible stuff. 
We read about stones and gems of all colors, walls and gates and streets, trees yielding fruit, a river. Christianity is a lot more earthy than I think we care to imagine. George Eldon Ladd, who came up with that phrase of the already and not yet of the kingdom of God, puts it best when he wrote that the Bible always places men and women on a redeemed earth, not in the heavenly realm removed from earthly existence. So we were made for earth, and in Jesus, God will, fu God will fulfill that original intent in a new earth. Okay, bad news for maybe some of us. We, some of us, we will not be floating around in ephemeral, ephemeral space. We will be on a new earth. We will be the new earth people as we live in the new city as God's original earthly dream brought to completion. So now floating around on a cloud. Bummer. Some of us are super bummed. Some harpists in the room are super bummed. <laughs> Uh, number four, peoples. People is plural, not just people. All God's chosen peoples. So God gathers up within God the full range of the world's ethnic diversity. Imagine that. Just, think, just sit and think about that for a second. All the ethnic diversity of the world brought up into God there. What this means is that no one ethnic group can bear or manifest the full image of God. It takes us all. And in the new city, we are all there as God's multi-ethnic race. One of the conversations I got to have last week was with Chris and Carrie Terman, and they live in the city. And they were sharing about how it's so cool to just run into people from, you know, all over the world, different backgrounds, ethnicities, skin colors, ideas. But that's, that's what our eternity is going to be. Um, and those, those, those uh, cultures expressed beautifully and perfectly and in a holy way. So heaven is not going to be full of just a bunch of people who look like you. And uh, this is really good news. Number five, creativity is there. We see peoples and cultures and kings. And, and I want to just draw our attention to not I am making all new things, but Jesus says, no, I'm making all things new. Anthony Hokma, I think he's Dutch, from his journal article, Heaven, Not Just an Eternal Day Off, puts it this way. I want you guys just to think about this. He's asking this question about the new city. Will there be better Beethovens on the new earth? Shall we, shall we see then better Rembrandts or better Raphaels? Shall we read better poetry, better drama, and better prose? Will scientists continue to advance in technological achievements? Will geologists continue to dig out the treasures of the earth? And will architects continue to build imposing and attractive structures? Will there be enticing new adventures in space travel? Interesting. Either way, for some mysterious reason, God wants to partner with us, and we will reign with God. Those of us who have been redeemed by the blood of the Lamb will reign with God, just like he desired for us in the beginning to create. We're going to have partnership between God and man. Okay, Dallas Willard, uh, I'm going to read a, a longer quote from his book, The Divine Conspiracy. The, again, thinking about this, what, what will creativity look like in the new city? We will not sit around looking at one another or at God for eternity, but will join the eternal Logos and reign with him in the endlessly ongoing creative work of God. It is for this that we were each individually intended as both kings and priests. A place in God's creative order has been reserved for each one of us from before the beginnings of cosmic existence. His plan is for us to develop as apprentices to Jesus to the point where we can take our place in the ongoing creativity of the universe. In due time, I can only imagine it will be some while after our passage into God's full world, we will begin to assume new responsibilities. 
Well done, good and faithful servant, our magnificent master will say. You've been faithful in the smallest things. Take charge of ten cities, five cities, many things, or whatever is appropriate. I suspect there will be many surprises when the new creative responsibilities are assigned. Perhaps it would be a good excuse for each of us to ask ourselves, really, how many cities could I now govern under God? If, for example, Baltimore or Liverpool or Alliston were turned over to me, with power to do what I want with it, how would things turn out? An honest answer to this question might do much to prepare us for our eternal future in the universe. Creativity. Partnership with God. Number six, there is life. Life is there, which would explain all of the creativity. The word here is Zoe. Shout out to Zoe Holloma. Birthday party yesterday. Uh, the life that does not run down is the translation there. So we, we see he showed, he showed me a river of the water of life, and on either side of the river was the tree of life. So we no longer desire to live independently from God like in the Garden of Eden. God is everywhere, available and manifested everywhere, filling us with God's glory. We finally, try, we finally find the life that is truly life. And last but not least, the most important thing, his face is there. This is the most incredible, wonderful reality of the new city. The face is there, and they, we shall see his face. Is that not the deepest longing of every human heart? Like Heather was kind of leading us in prayer about already, to delight in God and to be delighted in by God. We will finally know that to its fullest measure in the new city. Amen. So when is this going to happen? We've been waiting around for a long time. I have a prediction. I have... <laughs> I purchased a billboard on Highway 89 um, soon. That's what he says. He says, I'm coming soon. Look, I am coming soon. And later on, he says it again. I am coming soon. Yes, I am coming soon. But in closing, I just want to draw our attention to one other thing he says here at the end of, of chapter 22. He refer, Jesus refers to himself as the bright and morning star. I am the bright and morning star, he says. This is the last recorded thing that Jesus says about himself. And it's the last title that he gives himself, which is interesting. Why choose this title? Why not choose ultimate king of kings? Um, why not choose the last word? And I think, it, I think it's because it embodies the tension of I am coming soon. Soon is a word that is often subjective. Amen, parents? It means when I mean it's time, parents. So thinking about the, the tension of the, the night turning into day, although it is still dark and although there may be three or four hours until daybreak, when you see the morning star, you know that the night is over. Anyone ever had this experience of staying up all night and all of a sudden it, it actually just starts to look different, some, some extra stars come out, and that, that's, that's what he's getting at here. I can remember a few times doing that, being on the beach and, and just feeling that the night was over and morning was dawning. Here's how Bob Gaud's word I don't know how to pronounce that. Um, an economist from the Netherlands puts it. The morning star often appears between two and three at night when the darkness is complete and the faintest sign of morning is not yet visible. So small that it threatens to vanish the stars. Sorry, so small that it threatens to vanish. The stars seem unable to vanquish the overpowering darkness. Yet when you see the morning star, you know that the night has really been defeated. For the morning star pulls the morning in behind it just as certainly as Jesus pulls the kingdom in behind him. If you and I could learn to see Jesus in our circumstances, we can keep going. It may still be difficult, but when we see him, 
in them, we know that the night has been defeated. We can trust that he's pulling the kingdom in from behind him. And this can shape how we pray and live our lives right here, right now. We can learn to resist the agenda of the night and embrace the agenda of the day. We can live with the awareness that Jesus will return, but in the meantime, the time is now to repent and believe in the good news of Jesus. To learn to live the way Jesus would live. To surrender our own definition of good and evil and trust Jesus for his. To structure and arrange our lives in such a way that we see our prayer of in Allison as it is in heaven come into reality. Here's the, here's the truth. He is coming soon. This tension will resolve. Heaven and earth will be reconciled. God and man will dwell together for eternity in a new heaven and a new earth. And we are invited today to live like that's true. Jesus is the one we are waiting for. He is the one who will set all things to rights. He is the one who will make all things new. He is the one who will reconcile heaven and earth completely. He is the one who will reign in love and mercy for eternity. He is the one who truly knows how to live. He is the one who truly gives us rest. He is the one who will finish what he started. He is the one who will never leave us or forsake us. He is the bright morning star. He is the one who is coming soon. Let's say this together, and then we're going to sing one more song. Why don't we stand, and I'll we'll sing this, say this together, and I'll pray for us. So if you believe what I was just going on about, let's say this. Amen. Amen. Come, Lord Jesus. So, Lord, we rest in the fact that you're coming soon this morning. We, we don't know all the details of how that's going to work out, but we want to believe and trust you that it's true. We thank you, Lord, that you have a beautiful plan and a purpose for each one of us. Teach us how to live um, knowing that you are the bright and morning star, God. May we begin to see you pulling in the kingdom from behind you into our lives. May your light break into the darkness. And Lord, may your kingdom come in Allison as it is in heaven. Yes. We love you and we pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.